2 Corinthians chapter 4. I draw your attention tonight to the verse 4. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. It is especially the expression, the glorious gospel of Christ. That's our text tonight. And our subject is the glorious gospel of Christ. I want to consider three things. I want to consider, first of all, what the gospel is. To Paul, it's glorious. And then I want to consider, secondly, why that might be. Why is it glorious? And then thirdly, I want to consider what that should mean in our lives and in our Christian experience, if it is so glorious a gospel. So first of all, then, I draw your attention to how how Paul describes the gospel. What is it to him? This good news, because that's what gospel means, glad tidings, good news, good news of mercy and grace and redemption in and through Jesus Christ. What is it to Paul? It's glorious. It's a glorious gospel. Whenever he was an unconverted Pharisee, he didn't think that. He opposed that message. He resisted that glad tidings. It didn't look glorious to him at all because he was blind. He was still in his sins. He was blinded by the God of this world. And he couldn't see his, its glory. But on the Damascus road, something happened. He met the glory. He saw Christ. He was converted. He came to an understanding of the gospel. And the things of God he began to see clearly. And it dawned on him. This is what this gospel is. It's glorious. He saw it as something that is glorious. And when he wrote to the Corinthians, that's what he said, the glorious gospel. And when he's writing to Timothy, he used the same expression. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 11, he says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which has been committed to my trust. And so that's what it is. That's what it was to Paul. That's what it is truly, the glorious gospel of Christ, the glorious gospel of the blessed God. It's a message worthy of God himself. Now, I don't think the apostle Paul could have found a better word. I don't think he could have found in the vocabulary of the Bible 
And even in the vocabulary of human language, I don't think he could have found any more worthy description than that. Glorious. You know, the Apostle Paul doesn't throw that word around lightly. He doesn't use it lightly. He uses it carefully. And it's no mean word to give it to the gospel. Glorious gospel. The word is used of God Himself. He is glorious. God is glorious. He's glorious in His holiness. He's glorious in His name. Glorious and fearful name, Moses said. And so this word glorious is frequently used of God Himself. And Paul takes that word up and he says, that's the gospel. It's glorious. And and the gospel was Paul's delight. The gospel excited Paul. It was his boast. It was something that he said he wasn't ashamed of. It's the power of God. It's glorious. I'm not embarrassed by it. I don't think it's weak and feeble. And it excited him. And it stirred him up. And it made him the ambassador and the preacher and the messenger that he was because he'd caught something of its glory. And it filled his heart. And it filled his soul. And so it was to him the glorious gospel. But we have to ask, was he right? We have to ask wherein its glory lies. And is his perception of this true? And so we have to ask, why is it glorious? And so let's contemplate some of the reasons why the glad tidings of Christ is glorious. And I'll give you several reasons why it is glorious, this message. It's glorious because of its origin and source. If it were just a man-made thing, it could not be glorious. It would just be earthly. It would just be ordinary. If it came from an earthly spring, if it came from a human mind merely, if Paul just made it up or thought it up, it couldn't be glorious. It would have no glory no more glory than any other human idea or human philosophy. If it was just his fabrication, it would not be shining at all above the midday sun. But Paul did not originate it. It was entrusted to him. It was given to him. It was revealed to him. He himself said, it is the gospel of Christ. It's the gospel of the blessed God. It's His good news. And that's why it's glorious. And Paul just is the keeper of it and the preacher of it. It is not even angelic in origin. Yes, angels announced the advent of Christ, 
It's not that it just merely came from heaven. Yes, angels did announce it, and seraphim and cherubim study it. And the angel said, the, the angel said, Fear not, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. It's great joy. It's good tidings. It's glorious. But the angels did not originate it. They merely carried it from heaven at the time of the advent and announced it. Its origin is higher than angels. It came from the throne of God. It came from the heart of the blessed and glorious God Himself. That's why it's glorious. It came from glory itself and from the God of glory. It was contrived in the councils of the Holy Trinity. It is from the Father and from the Son and from the Holy Ghost. It is the gospel of the blessed God, the God who is infinitely happy in Himself in His sacred persons, enjoying Himself throughout all eternity with this gospel contrived in the divine decrees. That's why it's glorious. It's called the wisdom of God. It's called the power of God. Its grand scheme of salvation could not be devised by man. Its author is God. The plan is God's. It's all God's. And angels just look into it and study it. And men who are redeemed admire it. But it is the glory of God in origin. It's God's gospel. And that's one reason why it's so glorious, because it is so divine and so heavenly. But not only in origin divine, it is also glorious in time and in duration. It is called in the Bible the everlasting glad tidings, the everlasting gospel. It was the glad tidings promised before the world began, before there even was a creature, before there was Adam and before there were angels. It was promised. It was promised in the divine councils and the mystery of the Trinity. It was promised in the everlasting covenant of redemption between the sacred three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is from eternity. It is before time. The gospel, the glad tidings. And that's why it is glorious. Glorious than any human philosophy. More glorious than any human idea. Which only is created in time. But the gospel is from everlasting, promised in the sacred three. And so it is as ancient as God's decrees. It is as old as the Lamb's book of life, which is ordained before the world began. It's ancient 
And whenever Adam and Eve sinned, it came down from heaven, and it entered into the garden in time for the first time. And a lamb was revealed, and a sacrifice was offered, and coats and coverings were made for sinners. And sacrifice was instituted to set forth this ancient gospel, this glad tidings devised for the fall of mankind. It is the everlasting gospel. And into the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell, there came a seeking God who found them and redeemed them. It's as ancient as our first parents. And the gospel is, the Bible says, from generation to generation. Lift up your eyes, the Lord says, and look upon the earth beneath, and on the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall wax old like a garment, and they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. But my salvation shall be forever and my righteousness shall not be abolished. For the moth shall eat them up like a garment, and the worm shall eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation, before time, down through every generation of time, till the heavens and the earth depart. God's gospel is still here, and even beyond time and into the eternity and the worlds to come. Saints will still be studying it. Saints will still be praising God for it. Saints will still be worshiping the Lamb because of it. The everlasting gospel, that which is before time and outlives time and is beyond time, That's why it's glorious. Paul was right. It's the glorious gospel of the everlasting God. And so it is divine in origin, everlasting in duration. It's also glorious in its design and purpose. Its design is to glorify God. That's the purpose of of the gospel. It therefore must be glorious if it has such a glorious design. Its design and purpose is to glorify Him and His grace and His mercy in the salvation of vile, unworthy sinners. It's a glorious plan. It's a glorious design. You know, God's creation is glorious. God's creation is designed to reveal God's glory to the creatures, and it does. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. And as we look into the mirror of creation, we see God's wisdom. We see God's goodness, and we see God's power. His creation is glorious, but His gospel is far more glorious. And while the heavens declare the glory of God, the creation is not called the glorious creation. 
but his gospel is, declaring his glory in an even greater manner, and it is called the glorious gospel. It's the real teller of God's glory. It reveals aspects of his glory that the creation cannot reveal. Creation was completed and there was no sin. And creation has no message for sinners. And creation tells nothing of grace and nothing of mercy and nothing of atonement and nothing of redemption and nothing of pardon. Creation doesn't tell the whole story and it doesn't show all the glory of God. Creation is like the sea that is wavy. And yes, you see reflections of his glory, but it's unclear, wavy, uncertain. But the gospel is like the deep, still waters. No waves. It's like molten silver. The stillness of molten silver. So that when you look on the sea of the gospel, you get a more perfect reflection of the glory of God. And that's why Paul says the gospel is glorious, because it is the gospel of Jesus Christ who is the image, the very image of God himself, the glorious gospel. And so, while the Lord's works are manifold, and they reveal his glory. There's nothing reveals it more than the gospel. And the, the creation is really just the stage upon which the gospel comes and reveals the glory of God supremely in the life and death of Jesus Christ. And so it is the gospel that in the Bible is the riches of his glory and the riches in glory. It's the gospel. And so we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, a pure mirror revealing God in the wonders of his grace. And that's why he calls it glorious. He's right. He studied it. He has looked into it. He has dipped his spoon in the ocean of it. And he's right. It is the glorious gospel of grace. And it's also glorious in its sum and substance. It's glorious in its heart and center. It's glorious in its light and warmth because it is the gospel of Christ. Because at the heart of it is a person. And at the heart of it is a person with infinite love and infinite grace. The love of God in Jesus Christ. The love of God to sinners. It's glorious because at its heart lies God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, though he deserves to perish, yet should not perish, but have 
everlasting life. It's glorious because that's its substance. That's its sum. That's its heart. This wonderful love, this wonderful gift of grace, this glorious Savior sent into the world. And so it's glorious because Christ is glorious. It has a glorious story about a glorious person, and it reveals Christ, and it tells of the Redeemer. He's its core. He's its center, and therefore it cannot but be glorious. It's the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And there was never such a face in the universe as the face of Jesus Christ. And therefore it's glorious. The glory of his incarnation. What a glory! That in the fullness of time a glorious God should be conceived and born in a manger, born of a woman made under the law itself. The humiliation of the Redeemer, the coming into this world of woe, a divine person suffering for sinners, a substitute for sinners, atonement, And so there's this glorious person and this almost unbelievable work that he does. In his humiliation, a God who humbled himself, who though he was equal with God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, yet he took upon him the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of man and he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cursed cross for our sins. Glorious, glorious Savior, glorious in his coming, glorious in his living, glorious in his dying, glorious now in his present mediatorial power at the right hand of God, ever living for us ever living for sinners, interceding on the behalf of the vile and the wicked and the unworthy. The Son of God, still clothed in our humanity, though glorified, praying for us. It's no wonder, he says, it's a glorious gospel because of this glorious person and this glorious work and this glorious incarnation and this glorious atonement. He is glorious. Therefore, the story of him, the gospel, is glorious. Yes, Paul got it right. So right. The glory of the salvation he purchased the glory of the reconciliation he obtained by his blood, the glory of the forgiveness that he procured, the glory of substitution. And Paul said, So glorious is it that I determined not to know anything else among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Save this message. 
I'm not here to entertain you with other things. I'm not here to come to you with the slickness and the eloquence of the modern communicator. I'm here to preach Christ and this glorious gospel. That's all. It was glorious to Paul, and it's glorious to every minister of that gospel. Glorious in divine origin, glorious in its everlasting and timeless duration, glorious in its design and purpose, and glorious because of the Savior and the divine love that it tells of. But it's also glorious in its triumphs, glorious in its success, glorious in its effectualness, glorious in its power. This is another reason why it was glorious to Paul. This was why he wasn't ashamed of it. It's the power of God unto salvation. It has converted Jews and Gentiles. It has converted me on the Damascus Road. I've seen communities transformed by it. I've seen churches established by it. I've seen men casting away their idols and leaving their abominations and their sins through it. It's glorious, more glorious than any human philosophy. I have seen what it has done to the human heart. I've seen what it has done to communities. I have seen what it has done even to nations. It's glorious. It's not a weak, sickly thing. He himself had been subdued by it, and he'd witnessed many others being subdued by it as well. The Philippine jailer, and the, the woman Lydia, and so many, many more. He saw its power. He witnessed its triumphs, and he knew this is a glorious message, a powerful story that transforms people. And it does. It conquers. It conquers not as other kingdoms conquer, It conquers not as the world conquers with with sword and with violence, but the gospel triumphs with a message, with humility, with the story of a Redeemer who was crucified. It subdues by humility, and it overcomes through weakness. And that's why it's glorious. And fishermen... And humble servants proclaim it before kings and magistrates. And with the unction of the Holy Spirit, it powerfully transforms. And for thousands of years, the gospel has been triumphing, and it hasn't finished its march yet. It will still change people and communities. What the gospel has done to this world would take volumes to write. Universities have been established because of it. The great centers of learning in England came about through the gospel. Hospitals and all the great works of philanthropy came through Christians, came through people who had been transformed by the gospel. Heathen have been civilized through the gospel. 
It has brought regeneration. It has brought hope. It has brought salvation. It has brought comfort to the dying. It has brought riches to the poor. It's the glorious gospel. And Paul's right. He's right. Saying then what it is to Paul, the glorious gospel. Saying that it is so true that he sees it thus. What then does this mean in our lives? Saying that it is so glorious and why it is so glorious. How should that affect you and me? This glorious message. Well, if it's glorious... You ought to believe it. You ought to receive it and embrace it and take hold of it and be comforted by it and make it your hope and stay and your rock for everlasting life. The Bible says, repent and believe the gospel. Yes, you must believe it. If it's so glorious, you cannot refuse it. If it's so glorious, you dare not reject it. If it's divine and everlasting and so revealing of the majesty of God, then you must believe it. You must possess it. You must take hold of it. You had better believe it. You had better receive it. Don't be so foolish as to ignore such a gem. Don't be so unwise as to neglect this great pearl of great and glorious price. No. If glorious, then receive its Christ. If glorious, then rest in its hope. If glorious, then be comforted by its message. If glorious, then live and die in the faith of it. And then also, secondly, if it's glorious, and it is, you ought to study it. You ought to search it out as a a gem so beautiful and so glorious. And you turn it at every angle and you bring it to every window and you go to every ray of light twisting it and turning it to see its glories, to be hypnotized by it, to be overcome by it, to be drawn into it, to be drawn into its glory, to experience its glory, to let its rays shine into your heart, warming your heart, transforming your heart, so that you become almost united with it and part of it. Study it. If it's glorious, what else is there to study? What else is there to spend your time on? There's nothing more glorious than this. And therefore study it and search it and turn it and look at it and look into it. Doesn't the Bible say angels do that? They desire to look into the glorious gospel. Even it is for them, though they have not experienced it, though they have not felt the blood of that gospel that cleanses from sin, for they have had no sin, 
but still they study it, they admire it, they see that there is a glory in it. And how much more us sinners should be studied and so find it in your Bible and endlessly read about it in your Bible and turn over the Scriptures and search it out and meditate upon the glorious gospel in all its different aspects. Become a student of a glorious gospel. Become a student of it. Of a glorious gospel. Become a theologian in it. A theologian of the gospel. It's worthy of your intellect. It's worthy of your attention. It's worthy of your deepest thoughts. It's worthy of your most sincere meditations. All the words of the gospel, study them. The person of the gospel in Jesus Christ, study him. The work of atonement that he wrought at the cross, his mediatorial work now at the right hand of God, study it, search it out. Say, open thy mine eyes, O Lord, and show me wondrous things out of your glorious gospel. And so it is powerful to change your life if you will study it in the Bible and study its triumphs in church history. Let all your studies come to this to discover how glorious the gospel is. And so we should study it. But also, if it's glorious, we ought to adorn it with a holy life and with godliness and God-fearing lives. The Bible talks about the adorning of the doctrine of God, our Savior. And that's what we should do to the glorious gospel. We have to adorn it with our lives by honesty and by a God-fearing life showing in our living that the gospel is gloriously transforming, that it is worthy because it has made us the persons that we are. By your Christ-likeness, adorn this gospel. Show that it has changed you. Show that it's mighty. And so, whenever people say, you're different, you're honest, you're kind, you're unusual, you're peculiar, you're conscientious. Why? Why are you different? And they ask you a reason of the hope that is within you. Why are you different? And your answer is this, because of the glorious gospel of Christ. It should make us different, and we should adorn it. We should adorn this gospel. And if it's glorious and worthy, and it is, then we ought to do all in our power as Christians to promote it, to further it, to advance it. What more worthy cause is there than to advance the glorious gospel? What more worthy work than to give oneself for it? Paul did. This is the explanation of all his labors, of all his sufferings, of all that he faced. Why didn't he just retire and take it easy? Because of the glorious gospel. 
That's why. He said, I'm set for the defense of the gospel. Because it's glorious. It's worthy to defend. It's worthy to stand up for. I want to go to Rome. I'm going to Rome. I'm not going to be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. And so, Paul says, it's the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Commit it to my trust. That's what he felt. It was given to him to his trust, to keep, to promote, to further, to defend, to adorn, to publish, to preach. He had no more glorious trust. It's all he had. That's what he lived and he died for. This trust, not to amuse men, not to entertain men, not to win people over to himself with his great personality. All he had was the gospel. That's all he had. That's all he cared for, to get it out, to let men and women see it's, it's glory, and not his. And so he preached Christ and nothing else. And so, brethren and sisters, to put her money, to put her tithe, to put her time, to put every effort to publish it. Why? Because it's glorious. That's why. And so you see what it was to Paul. You see that it is right that he sees it thus, and you see what should be the effects of that in his life and in ours who have this gospel and believe it. So we thank God for the glorious gospel. And may it comfort you. And may it save you, sinners.